0: Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Limcooler, extension beef cattle specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will share current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef cattle production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on beef cattle topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast And find the information useful. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Beef Bits podcast. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Gabe Pint. Gabe is at, uh, let's see, Gabe, you're at Virginia Tech at the Piedmont Piedmont Station? I'm at the Shenandoah Valley Research Farm. Shenandoah Valley Research Farm. Fantastic. And Gabe, how long have you been there in that position?
1: I've been two years, about two years now here at what's called the McCormick Farm, where Cyrus McCormick first invented the
0: reaper in the 1800s. Wow. So quite a bit of history there at that uh, station. It is. It's a good
1: good place to be. Some uh, old innovation and um, some new innovation that we're trying to continue that legacy in.
0: So, so gay, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your background, uh, maybe... Um... What, what you do there, what's your focus of interest is um, there at the station? Sure. Uh, so it is, in some respect, this is
1: a bit of a homecoming. My uh, grandfather is from the Shenandoah Valley up in Warren County, um, but he ended up in Florida where I was also born and grew up in Florida, Central Florida, ended up eventually going to Virginia Tech for graduate school where I worked with Dr. John Fike as my major advisor. And what I worked on was sheep production and welfare in civil pasture systems there in Blacksburg, so the mountain, mountainous region of Virginia. Uh, so I was there, got my PhD under him, and then ended up getting a job with Virginia Tech as an extension specialist in ruminant production systems at the Southern Piedmont Ag Research and Extension Center, which is in Blackstone. So now I'm moving a little, uh, we're about three hours east of Blacksburg where I continued some work, Um, in civil pasture. Uh, In that case, more uh, blob barley pine and beef cattle production systems was there for a couple of years and then transitioned up here to the Shenandoah Valley at the McCormick Farm.
0: So um, you you mentioned civil pasture systems, civil pastoral systems, and that's our topic for discussion for today. So uh, give us your definition of what silver pasture silver silvo pastoral systems really are yeah
1: they're the integration of trees forages and livestock on the same unit of land in the same point of time so some those those types of practices might look different depending on where you are in north america um and the Southeast and down into Florida, you might envision maybe a loblolly or longleaf pine, savanna, you've got scattered trees, some forage understory, of the cattle grazing underneath, maybe some small ruminants. Uh, maybe in the Northeast or Appalachia, you've got maybe some fruit trees, some nut trees or other hardwoods um, and mixed uh, livestock in those situations as well with some cool season introduced forages. Uh, even, even the Midwest and uh, Pacific West, um, are known for some specific types of civil pastures including nut trees or coniferous trees of some sort so um, just to give our listeners some perspective or ideas of what what types of systems to visualize
0: uh thanks for that that's a that's a really good way to look at that and uh, so you and I have a little bit of common background I actually did my master's research in silver uh, civil- silvo i keep saying silver but silvo pastoral systems uh when i was in missouri and went down to the kind of southwest corner of missouri where one of the um well it is the the primary wall, black walnut producer is at and located they've got their cracking uh facilities down there and so they were interested in looking at removing the forge in between the walnut trees because making hay was a bit of a challenge um Pretty humid in in Missouri, and when you got forage that is laid under shade all the time with those more mature type trees, it makes it hard to try and dry, so they were interested in looking at grazing, and I did some grazing work with cattle down there, not sheep, but in hindsight, I think we probably would have been better with sheep, so uh, there's some things that you learn as you move through those systems that uh, sometimes a different species that we maybe wouldn't consider works a little bit better. Um, so tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your kind of findings or some of the work that you did uh, in your graduate uh, studies looking at integrating sheep in with trees. Sure. Uh,
1: so in the, the context of where the location and the, the type of site that I did my work, these, these stands were established in um, about 1993. So um, it's, it's interesting. These are, these are definitely long term. Systems right, uh, they take a long time to get going, and, and it's hard for us as animal scientists and forest agronomists, you know, to um, to think in the context of a forester. But it's much a much longer time frame in many cases. So these stands were established in 1993. I started my work about 20 20 years later as a PhD student. They had originally planted uh, at the research farm in Blacksburg, Kentland Farm um, stand or uh, rows of trees about 40 feet apart and the trees were planted every eight feet. And in, in their case, um, they, they didn't have animals uh, on the site for a while letting those trees get established. Um, so a little bit different than your work where you're actually looking at how do you protect trees during that early um, establishment phase. And those trees eventually got up to a nice height and were thin periodically over time, they did some work Um, over those 20 years, some early work. And then by the time I came, the trees were now at about a 40 by 40 foot spacing. So something you might see in a a nut orchard of some sort in the Midwest or um, southeastern U.S. So uh, we did, these were set up for sheep, um, smaller research paddocks replicated. We had black walnut trees and a grafted variety of honey locust called the millwood. It's a thornless honey locust tree that, produces exceptionally large pods that are full of carbohydrates. And so we had these two different systems compared to open pasture systems. And we stocked these paddocks with sheep to look at uh, forage production and also animal production. And we also did some uh, animal welfare assessments. So using trail cameras, we would take pictures of the paddocks and monitor sheep behavior, see where they spent their time these different kinds of systems Uh, we also used some vaginal temperature sensors using some cedars so that we could record body temperature and see if the shade made any difference in animal physiology and um, sure enough what we saw was the animals were cooler when they're in the shade and they also love the shade right i think anybody could tell us that and now we've got some hard data to, to show it but yeah, animals use the shade a lot in the summertime, even in the moderate t- summers of Blacksburg. Um, we saw about a degree Fahrenheit difference in core body temperature.
0: Oh, so, that's significant.
1: That's a big deal for uh, homeothermic animals, right? Um, and that's in Fahrenheit. So yes, the, the the core temperatures are lower when animals have shade provided for them. So what that ended up meaning and productivity was we we had a little bit less forage in the civil pastures, which makes sense. Your trees, your forages are competing for resources, whether that's light, soil nutrients, water. So you've got a little bit less forage under the trees, but the animals perform just as well. So our total animal output was the same on the civil pastures compared to the open pastures. Um, so it seems to be that animal welfare really is, is playing a role in compensating for reduced forage productivity. So that, that's a great finding um, some people might say, well, you saw the same animal performance, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that doesn't account for whatever those trees are producing. So anything you get from those trees, whether that's nuts, timber, in the case of the honey locust trees, firewood or um, pods in the fall, that's just an added benefit and that can be a substantial benefit in some cases.
0: Yeah, absolutely and you know the the thing that we forget about a lot of times is uh, in many instances individuals are you know looking at a farm investment for the long term and wanting to leave something maybe for their kids or their grandkids even and if you can provide an opportunity maybe to increase cash flow um on an acre basis without having detrimental impacts on livestock systems. And that seems to be a win-win.
1: Yeah, that's right. And uh, I'm not great on economics. Um, it's not my specialty, but if you do look at some of the literature with regards to economic analyses of civil pasture, there is a big advantage to having yearly steady returns from your livestock on your land and then having a big payout whenever you get something out of your trees at the end. And, uh, yeah, especially for those people looking at uh, long-term perspectives in terms of retirement or something for their kids to use, then um, that can be an added, an important factor to consider.
0: You mentioned locusts and, uh, you know, the, the, I did two different trials when I was uh, doing my research at Missouri. And another trial was we actually took an open pasture and we're looking at converting it into a civil pastoral system. And, yeah, they, these locusts that we got were grafted trees and they were supposed to be what you had, but they were a fair percentage of them that were the thorned uh, black locust varieties. And let's just say that the farm crew cussed me for many years because of driving over limbs that fell down and punctured tires and tractors and trucks and all that. So uh, those of you that are listening, uh, be sure if you're thinking about a system like this, that you do your homework on locust trees because there certainly is quite a bit of difference between them.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, Jeff. And, um, f- specifically if, if we talk about honey locusts, I, we used to grafted what I said was thornless variety, but keep in mind that if they sprout below the bud, below the graft bud, um, then they will still have thornless shoots. And also if those pods, if the seeds come out and sprout, those daughter plants will have thorns as well. So yeah, um, something to watch out for. I will note, it, note that we're close, when we manage these systems, we, uh, rotational stocking of the livestock is important, you know, to keep damage minimal and to keep animals moving, just as it really is with most forage production systems. But in that case, the sheep really love eating that honey locust regrowth. And so I never noticed any appreciable thorns develop on any seedlings because the sheep just never gave them time to grow enough. Um, but if you were to start making hay on that, and those thornless, presumably, uh, thornless, um, trees were to have daughter plants, then those could develop thorns eventually and be a big hazard for equipment and just a pain to work with.
0: Yeah, that that's a good point. And, and so, you know, when you, when you've got something like that, that the, the pods are actually pretty high in nutritional value for ruminants, um, what what are they in the mid teens for protein or maybe even higher?
1: Yeah, I think so in terms of protein, but um, really just a lot of good digestible energy uh, inside of them. At least this is the the ones that have been selected for high energy content. Uh, Dr. Fike did some work with a previous student, and they found that the energy value was very similar to whole ear corn. Um, which I guess is an interesting analogy, but if you were to imagine whole your corn just being dumped on your pastures, about the same time when you might be strip-grazing stockpile tall fescue, you know, in, in October, November, December, um, you've got a nice high-protein, cool-season forage grass around here. You might be lacking a little bit of energy for growing animals or lactating animals. Those pods may be a nice
0: complementary um, supplement at that time especially if we think about that time of the year and sheep production systems where we're maybe trying to increase the energy intake of those ewes to flush them, to increase uh, reproductive success. It, it does tend to work into that whole idea of this system concept. Yeah. yeah. So um, you mentioned rotational grazing and, and that was kind of something that was important. And that is, um, that is what we found with cattle. And there's, the, the station, I actually, the private owners that, um, I was working with, uh, we did one short duration. It was eight weeks and, um, our, our work was looking at really high density, kind of hit the grass really hard, take it down short so they could come in there with their sweepers and uh, pick up the walnuts. But even in that eight week period in a continuously stocked, uh, area, the, uh, the owner said no more. Uh, one year was enough because the cattle tended to congregate in a certain area. And when you've got a tree that they favor, they begin to urinate and defecate and can cause quite a bit of damage underneath that tree. And some of these trees may have really shallow feeder root systems that you could potentially damage and maybe even kill the trees out. And so they also didn't like, uh, in our system, what we did is ran one, row of poly, uh, tape up, uh, the tree rows. And the main reason for that is they had herbicide application around actually just one strip down through the trees. And so there was no grass there and they didn't want it to be damaged any more than necessary. And so we ran one kind of poly wire through there and then had the ends open. So what we saw was some pretty severe laning developed and as the cattle were going back to water troughs or water sources and mineral feeders you you seen in eight weeks some significant laning when we've got six to 800 pound cattle out there we didn't even have cows Um, we were using feeder calves but if you had even larger animals um, i think the laning issues would even been more problematic so that's why i mentioned the sheep probably would be a maybe a little bit better system You, you don't have quite as heavy of an animal out there even though you may have more animals um they don't tend to seem to lane like cattle do they kind of appear like when they move through a field they're three four five six wide however many you got in a in a flock right but did you see any issues in your work with any you know with any issues on laning or loafing areas and some of that
1: yeah, not so much with sheep, and I think for those reasons you mentioned. Also, of course, just the impact uh, per per unit of area on the ground um, in terms of hoof weight is is less. So, not not so much. Of course, we're rotationally we're moving everything rotationally. Maybe f- between three and all all my work, maybe three days to seven days is generally the maximum um so that gives time for land to recoup- recuperate and for the animals to be efficient in their utilization you know spreading out um but yeah i think those kind of concerns are what has left a bad taste for civil pasture and many foresters mouths uh, or perhaps orchard managers um because you can't you can't just turn animals out into these kinds of systems with trees and expect the animals to manage themselves you've got to keep them moving and um, try to manage that risk of causing site disturbance in localized areas. So yeah, great great point to, to remember.
0: Did, did you all um, measure any soil compaction or anything like that? We did not. No, I didn't
1: I didn't look at any um, soil measurements. There's been some work before this looks at compaction. And you can get compaction just from having animals in the pasture, right? That's that's kind of normal and expected thing. Um, but generally, that's very that that compaction is limited to the top few inches of soil. Um, even even in some cases in the winter time, you know, when you've got um, some less than optimum situations for grazing, and a lot of what the research has indicated that is that typically those that compaction is minimized or gone by a few seasons of freeze thaw cycles. So generally that, that compaction upper horizon of the soil doesn't last,
0: it doesn't stick around. That, that's kind of what I remember too from, from our work. And we, we did try to do some soil compaction work and we didn't really see anything much deeper than about three inches or so. So uh, we were in that same mindset that, you know, a few freeze thaw cycles and it would be back to normal. That was at least the hope, anyways. Um, so when we, we think about this civil pastoral system, um if, if somebody was interested in just going out and say, you know, I've got some I've got some acreage, I've got some animal, I've got some trees, what what do you really need to think about if you're gonna to try to implement a system like this?
1: Well, figuring out what your goals are is an important first step. There's many different reasons that people come at civil pasture and uh, probably a primary one of course is, is land productivity. So I mentioned the fact that we saw similar animal productivity and then whatever you get from the trees, it's just an added, added benefit. And um, I've done some productivity estimates and um, using some literature review. And it looks like in general, civil pastures can be as much as, as 50% more productive, more productive than managing forests or orchards. And pastures alone or separate, so added productivity can be important. Some people, um, for them, it may be animal welfare. Right, they want to provide shade for their livestock and do it in a way that's um, beneficial to the environment, not just having the shade structure, uh, you know, or or um, one or two trees, which can cause its own environmental issues and also um, disease vector issues if you have limited shade. Um, and then some people might come at it more from the environmental side, what kind of benefits would a civil pasture provide to uh, soil carbon or uh, environmental carbon, or um, what about um, wildlife habitat, insect habitat, civil pastures can provide more habitat for a diverse variety of plants and other animals. Um, and also aesthetics. Um, oftentimes these open Savannah sites are, preferred by humans in terms of appeal. It looks like a a nice park with grass underneath and trees overhead and that's a preferred habitat um, that that humans seem to enjoy looking at. So there's aesthetic appeal as well. So figuring out what your goals are will determine what what you're gonna strive for. Um, Then of course, there's, what do you have to work with? Um, There's two ways really to approach civil pasture and we've already touched, I think on, on both of them really. If you've got an open pasture without any trees, then you'll probably be looking at adding trees to that pasture versus if somebody's got a stand of woods or timber or, or an orchard or something, they'll be looking at perhaps thinning those trees and adding forages underneath them. So both of those approaches are very different and um, depends on what you've got to work with to start off. So those are some important considerations at first. and And really these are complex, systems that take a lot of of management and forethought and they can be very rewarding but they do require planning and i think they require a team and that's what has been fun and enjoyable with our work here at virginia tech is we've got a great team of all different disciplines working on this and um that really is important to to think about these when when you're developing systems that are complex like this foresters animal scientists agronomists um, they're all important to have in the conversation.
0: That's a really good point. Uh, there, There is a lot that goes into these systems. And um, um, I was fortunate when I was doing my grad work at M- University of Missouri that we had a team involved because I knew nothing about trees and how to take diameter at breast height and all that. But I learned. And uh, I think I also then helped teach them a little bit about rotational grazing and managing livestock. So um, it was it was one of those things that were does take the various disciplines to come in and help you think through some of the obstacles and then some of the opportunities in systems like this. But let's let's dive in just real quick thinking about in, in our area, on the eastern half of the state where we've you know kind of got more wooded areas, uh, if somebody wanted to think about converting a wooded area, into a civil pastoral system there's certainly some things that need to be considered and it goes from soil and some of the issues there may be with soil Um, but where would you think or what would be some of the things you might recommend to somebody to first let's got our goals set we know what we want to do we want to then convert this area of wood lot our wood area into a civil pastoral system what are a few of the kind of things that you would tell them to think about as you begin developing the system?
1: Yeah, uh, it would be good to have a visit with all the all the different disciplines. You know, bring your forester, bring your extension agent, agronomist, animal scientist, and, and have a conversation together at the same time, in the same place, you know, so everybody's on the same page. And what you'll probably want to start with is, uh, as you said, take a look at your soil. A lot of times, especially in Virginia or our wooded sites are more marginal land that hasn't, it may have a history of cropping decades ago, and uh, maybe not anything has been put back on that land. And so your pH may be lower than desirable for most of our introduced grass species, not to mention low phosphorus, potassium, perhaps. Um, so getting your your soil up to par, trees may do okay on those kinds of sites, but grasses may not. And so that's something to think about. Um, Of course, looking at your trees and what you've got to work with will be important. Um, Not all trees do well with grasses. You've got some trees that leaf out real early in the spring and late in the fall, and um, maybe have too deep of shade. I'm thinking perhaps, like some of the oak species have, have pretty deep shade uh, as well as beech trees the American beach um, uh, compared to something like uh, black walnut that you and I have both worked with or honey locusts or black locusts that have more of a dappled shade. They both tend to leaf out somewhat late in the spring and lose their leaves somewhat early in the fall compared to other trees. And so that's pretty complementary with, um, are cool season grasses that grow most in the spring and the fall and so you have less overlap in terms of growth time so looking at what trees you have and what you want to leave um there was a civil or there's a civil pasture here this at the Shenandoah Valley A-Rick has got they they came at it from that same perspective it was a degraded woodland site and so um they they came in did some assessment of the soil did some assessment of the trees and unfortunately there there wasn't much, there weren't many good trees here to start with. And so it was deciding what to keep was largely just a function of what's a tree, what's a good tree and what's an invasive species. And they took out the invasives and were left with not that much. And then it turns out that they left a bunch of ash and the emerald ash borer came through and took those all out. So um, it's been naturally thinning ever since. But uh, sometimes you're just left with what you've got and you've got to make, make, um, make what you can out of it. Income considerations are important too. If you've got a valuable tract of timber and you've, you've got good timber in there that can be harvested, then that may be the idea that you take some of that and leave some of your young stuff um, to, to start over. Um, so it, it depends what you've got in terms of trees. For, getting forages established can be tricky in some of these sites, especially if it's marginal land. What they did here was broadcast seeded and it, it worked fine but when you're dodging trees and in our case rocks or, or hills and some marginal land uh, no-till drills really aren't an option and so that can be tricky for people that are um used to, to no-till drilling forages in. Um, So yeah, some things to think about in terms of forage species, you know, and what you might want to plant. A lot of people in our area are familiar with tall fescue, orchard grass, the clovers and and bluegrass, and those do well in civil pasture systems. Cool season grasses, you know, are light saturated at lower percentages than warm season grasses, which can use all the light they can get. So there's a little less um, impact of trees on cool season grasses compared to warm season grasses. So those are generally a good fit. work well for people
0: around our area is there any concern you mentioned that they broadcast seeded Um, you know sometimes we can get some pretty heavy leaf litter uh, in the understory and you know the thought is that that seed kind of germinates and takes off then it turns dry like what we're we've kind of turned dry here in this part of the world Uh, and that seed just Germinating, and then all of a sudden no rain and the seedlings burn up but is that any concern in some of these systems where you're or is there usually enough breakdown that leaf litter isn't a big big concern? Sure it
1: it is a concern but I mean it's just broadcast seeding is risky as you know right it's really weather dependent whether you're successful or not and so what I've seen with um, my experience with with overseeding into these kind of systems where you've got um, leaf litter or in and, and the case here, they actually did uh, some mulching of the stumps and, and residue. So then you've got some additional residue. Uh, at, at my place at home, we had a bunch of autumn olive and, and cedar that had grown up and we had that mulched and just left it there on the ground. So you're talking about three to four inches of mulch. And I, I thought that perhaps this was going to be a failure and wouldn't work at all. And it turns out that uh, we had a wet fall and it washed that seed into the ground, and even though we got some bad slopes, that mulch actually retained the soil, and so that turned out well in a wet situation to broadcast seed, the mulch held the soil together, so that was a good thing. In a dry situation, yeah, that would have been tough. Um, it, it probably wouldn't have worked out as well, um, so uh, it, can be, it can be a concern, but it's a risk with overseeding no matter what you what you do, um, what you might do, you might consider is a lot of times when people are thinning woods um, and they they might leave tops or there's invasives or young stuff that they want to get rid of. Instead of mulching it and letting it lie, you can if you think it's going to be too much, just drag it out or pile it together. And a little bit of residue is not going to be a problem. If you have inches of residue, that's when you start running into problems. And um, so you can usually minimize that with some accumulation or, or dragging
0: out of the site. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, the other thing is we, we talked about this, but, you know, learning a little bit about soils and, and I thought that was a good thing that you brought up and reinforced because I'll just share one experience. When I was going back to my work site at Missouri, um, there was a, a neighbor that, Renovated an area, um, took everything down, and then tried to go back in and seed that area down. And what he wound up with was a rock farm because there really wasn't any topsoil. And so there was a, probably a reason it was predominantly growing in some trees and cedars and that. And uh, had he done a little bit of homework and learned a little bit about the soil type and the depth of topsoil that he had, probably would have saved his money and just let that area go and, and kind of had some cover because it just never did come back weeds here and there, but it certainly wasn't productive. Like I'm sure he hoped it would have been.
1: Right. And, and it's interesting you, you bring that up. I mean, soil pastures are great. And, and typically most, most often I see them really in marginal sites, right? People want to, they've got some woodland that's not great timber, and um, it wouldn't make great pasture or cropland. And so they're like, well, we'll, we'll do the both of them together. And that it works out great in many cases. And I've seen in our situation, it's worked out and we've got a good stand of forages and the trees are getting better. Um, but you get what you put into it, right? And so um, don't expect that land just because you put grass in it to perform the same as your other pastures. It, it may not be a fair comparison uh, compared to your best pastureland,
0: yeah, that's that's a good point. The um, the other thing is we you just mentioned it is marginal ground, but uh, there's nothing that says that a guy or a gal can't take really productive ground and convert it into a system. And um, um, you know, I, I think we forget that there is the opportunity to integrate these systems and. You could do row cropping in, in these while the trees are young and they're doing establishment, right? I mean, that's not an issue.
1: No, certainly not. And some people do hay, right, uh, in between alleys. So if you've got trees far enough apart, nice, long, straight rows, you're planting trees. So you're, you're more flexible in, in where they go. You can think about site layout, which would include uh, what, what kind of equipment you want to get in there long term. What what size does your co-op use for a sprayer boom? You know, think about that. Um, whether or not you want to be spraying underneath trees may be another issue. But um yeah, think about long term how you're gonna use that site. And when you've got a, a blank slate like pasture or crop ground and you wanna get some trees in there, you've got a little more flexibility in terms of layout.
0: And and I think then it becomes, you know, making sure we we consider the trees and the tree species. Some, some do not like competition and you've got to keep the grass or other competition when they're small down and and let those trees kind of get off to a good start. And the other thing is it seems like uh, uh, rodents can be a real hassle. I mean rabbits and whatnot will come in and chew on some of these little seedlings and uh, they can, they can do a damage in, in a lot of trees in a short period of time.
1: Yeah, voles, voles love chewing on bark of trees. And that's the issue that all foresters are, are dealing with. So um, yeah, you got to protect your trees, not just from cattle or, or livestock, but same same forestry concepts apply with uh, deer and voles and other rodents, So, tree tubes or cages or mats. Meet, talk with your forester about uh, what kind of practices are recommended for your area.
0: So when we when we're looking at trees too, um, there there we've talked about, for example, walnuts, um, locusts, pecans are another example of the leaf type. But then uh, it's also good to visit with your forester and and your um, animal scientists to find out are there some trees we shouldn't plant for risk of toxicity concerns with livestock, and um, do you have any that you would. Kind of come to mind right away for that you'd say, nah, I probably don't want to plant those. Uh, you're the animal nutritionist, so I'm supposed to ask you that question. Well, I, I probably would stay away from cherry trees, right? Yeah. Well, there you go.
1: That's a good point. Yeah. So cherry trees, uh, when they will to fall down, and they've got that that issue of poisoning. Um, yeah, but beyond that, um, there, there's, I don't know. It, it's hard to say. If you've got horses, are a whole nother deal. So maybe we'll leave that conversation for another time. Um, They've got more sensitivities, but um, cattle, as long as I feel like, maybe you correct me if you don't like this, but it seems like when cattle have a lot of good grass to eat, then they don't, you don't have as much in terms of poisoning problems. So if you, if you Google a plant, a lot of times it comes up that it's toxic. So there's lots of toxic plants and you could worry yourself to death searching Google for toxic plants. But um, a lot of times they're toxic at high levels and generally you run into problems in drought or when animals don't have anything else to eat. So beyond cherries and storms, those two things together uh, and cattle don't mix well. Um, I I don't have really had that many concerns. What, What do you think, anything else?
0: The, the only other things, well, you brought up a good point, and, and toxicities really are dose-dependent. And so there's, um, you know, with, with oaks, we, we have uh, the tannins that can be problematic in cattle if they gorge on those. And um, we know that, that uh, there can be some issues with the tannins and, and the acorns that, that can affect cattle, but um, they've got to eat quite a bit of them. Um, the other thing is that with, uh, the juglone in black walnuts is, is an issue and can be toxic. And there's even been instances where folks have used, uh, sh- like sawdust from, a, a meal that was processing lumber from black walnut and caused some toxicity issues in cattle. And they'll, you wouldn't think they would go and eat sawdust, but it's something novel and they'll taste a little bit of it and eat some of it. And it, it can be pretty toxic at low doses, but, um, it was the same thing. I could, I could turn cattle into a nice vegetative paddock and it would be, you know, what you would think would be perfect pasture. And if there was a low hanging limb, they'd go right over to that tree and strip all those leaves off that black walnut tree and then go start grazing, but never seen any toxicity issues or what we felt like were toxicity issues. Cause it was a low dose. Um, and, and we got them out of there before the nut started falling and you know the the outside of the nut's going to have a pretty high level of juglone, so you just have to learn to manage it a little bit. And we, you, I thought you nailed it. Is these systems require management? It's not just oh well. There's the back forty woods. We're going to go turn the cows out in it. Yeah. So beyond that, um, there are some a few others that you know are in that same neighborhood. But if if you just kind of manage things, I think the risk is pretty low. Yeah, I mean,
1: we've got toxic plants all over the place uh, horse nettle and pokeberry, and, and it's all dose dependent, as you said. I, I've seen the, the sheep and the cattle all eat black locust. Oh, sorry, black walnut. Yeah, black locust, I think some people say has some toxicity issues at high enough amounts, but I mean, these, these ruminants love that, love black locust browse, and I've never seen issues. Um, even we've got some Kentucky coffee tree, which doesn't make any sense why we have it here on the farm. Here in the Shenandoah Valley um, of Virginia, and that's supposed to be highly toxic. Um, maybe some alkaloids, I'm not entirely sure what they are, but um, the steers love them. The heifers love them, and they don't eat a lot. It's just every now and again there's a little one and they'll browse it down to the ground, just as they will poke berry, and it doesn't seem to have any negative effects. So, yeah, just watching it. I mean, you probably don't want your cattle and sheep to be eating your trees down to the ground anyway, you're going to provide some sort of protection and at low levels in most cases won't have a big effect on the animals.
0: Yep. And you know, the, the Buckeye trees are pretty toxic too, the, the nuts from the Buckeyes. And that's
1: probably, a, yeah, that's probably a big, big concern. Actually, that's a good one to bring up. I, I probably wouldn't use those at all. And we don't have those here. They're typically maybe planted in the landscape setting.
0: Yeah. But So, so that's just given, you know, that that necessity to work as a team uh, to try and come up with a system like uh, that's going to be safe for the animals, are relatively safe, but then also meet some of those goals. If, if a person wants veneer quality walnut, they're probably not going to be doing a forty by forty spacing because they're going to get too limmy and have a lot of knots and so again you got to have those kinds of discussions to have a realistic system too so as we wrap up i think this has been a good discussion of of thinking about integration of livestock and and uh, wooded areas Um, are there any potential drawbacks that you could think of in a system like that
1: yeah, we, I mean, we've covered a good good number of them. Um, you know, just the complexity, right, can be daunting to a lot of people and the ability to work with different groups and different people to, to come up with a plan that suits everyone and, and results in a good system is, is difficult. Um, you've got your, your, toxi- your plant toxicities that are issues. You've got the inputs needed for forages that aren't really needed as much for trees, or at least traditionally, haven't been a consideration for trees. Um, so yeah, there there are some shortcomings, some some things to think about. Um, and uh, yeah, just thinking about um, layout and long term, what happens to these systems? They are ever changing, right? They're dynamic and. Uh, with an, with an open pasture that stays in grass forever, and you might spray it occasionally to kill your weeds, um, you fertilize it occasionally, and keep your soil nutrients up, pH uh, where it needs to be. Um, you're, you're adding an, an additional layer with the trees as they start to grow and, and close canopy. What it, what, what's your next step for that? And that's a big question, and it's gonna change for everybody depending on their goals and objectives. Do you let that turn into open canopy forest? Are the trees your long-term goal? Or are you more concerned with maintaining it as a, a civil pasture or, or a pasture, more on the, the uh, livestock side, you start thinning those trees. And what do you do with those trees um, if you do thin them? And do you put something back uh, to replace them? So um, there are considerations in terms of, of these systems that are not static.
0: That's That's excellent. Uh It's a very good comment, particularly because a lot of people aren't going to be the foresters. And if you've got the goal of thinning and taking trees out, sometimes there's a bit of a disappointment when they look and say, well, it's a it's an eight inch diameter tree. It doesn't have a whole lot of value, but yet you need to thin those trees out maybe to open the canopy up for the other trees in the grass. And so what they thought maybe was going to be this huge cash, of, cash crop of timber isn't exactly that.
1: Yeah, so markets are very important, you know, especially with trees. And I, I don't really understand that as much. You know, it's a pretty unique um, to thing that I've, I've never really thought of. But uh, let's say somebody wanted to, to use um, uh, some sort of hardwood tree in their civil pasture, but there's really no mills around that would take timber for for boards or something like that, then um, it just it doesn't make any sense. That would further south and more of the pine production areas. So in, in your case, maybe a pine would be, would make more sense. Um, I know there's some areas where you can actually make money off of red cedars and I don't know where they are, but somebody tells me they exist. Um, but in that case, you know, you could get something out of those cedars, uh, but that's very Specific to those areas.
0: Yep. Good point. Well, Gabe, I want to thank you for sharing um, all your knowledge on kind of thinking through these systems and integrating livestock back into kind of our wooded areas or developing from scratch a civil pastoral system. Uh, any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners?
1: Well, you probably close with this on your podcast anyway, but check in with your agent and your specialist, you know, um, and start assembling a team. Think, think beyond just the, if you're a livestock producer, think of beyond the, the animal scientists and the um, nutritionists, the forage agronomists you usually work with and, and invite a forester along and see what kind of discussion is brought up. Um, even if you don't end up implementing one of these, these systems, but you do have woods on your farm, um, there can be some opportunities that you've never thought about and having the forester there can be really beneficial. So yeah, assemble a team if you're
0: curious about this and, and enjoy some good conversations. Good, good input. Gabe, thanks for uh, joining us today and uh, sharing. I think this will be beneficial to a lot of our folks that um, are thinking about this and how to get started. And sometimes it's just um, you maybe you've got that little bit of an idea of what could I do with this area and maybe this discussion sparks some interest and uh, some folks will go out and make those contacts and then maybe draw up a plan and, and see where it takes them. So we want to thank you again, Gabe, uh, for joining us. And we look forward to visit, visiting with you in the future. Uh, hopefully y'all will continue to get some decent rain over that way and grass will keep on growing. We need it. Thank you for having me. You bet, Gabe. Have a great day. See you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. We hope you found it enjoyable and informative. Be sure to subscribe to the Beef Bits podcast for future episodes as well as listen to previous ones. Until next time, be safe and reach out to your county extension office for more information on beef management topics.